Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. If country borders and grids can fascinate you and state names intrigue you, if atlases, globes, city plans, subway maps, and of course, world maps are your thing? If you can name the capital city of Namibia, and if you get giddy about flags, you are in the right place. This is Map Corner, a podcast about the love of maps brought to you by Royfield Brown and Claire Asprey. Now, on with the show. Hello, and welcome to Map Corner. I'm Royfield Brown, who is 33.8. 44 degrees north and 122.227 degrees west. What do you think that places me on planet Earth this week, Claire? Well, I wouldn't know from the coordinates, I have to be honest, but I do happen to know that you are in the US today. I am in Oakland, California, and as always, I'm joined by that most organised of women, the Western Hemisphere's go-to woman if you want anything done, it's our Claire Asprey. And where are you today, Claire? Well, I'm still at back in the old 52.1 latitude and 0.5 longitude at my home. Is this going to be an unrunning theme where I'm somewhere flar-flung and you're always stuck in Luton? I'm in Bedford-ish. Possibly. I'm not, though, I'm not quite the globetrotter that you are, Royfield. Though, Claire, you have done a tiny bit of globetrotting yourself. Yes, and there was, a, there was a tiny little thread which I started for a nefarious reason on, on Facebook, asking people to say how many countries I've actually been to. But what is your number of countries? Oh, crikey. It was about 10, I think. Hmm. Dipped a toe in Belgium? I don't know that I have, really, unless I went through it on the way. So I may have gone through it on the way to somewhere, but no, not knowingly. I've been through Austria and Slovenia, and I can't count those because I didn't actually step foot in them but drove past that little sticky out bit of Austria in a car. Ditto Slovenia on the way to Croatia. So these don't count for me. But the reason why uh, it's a nice little signifier is you, dear caller, dear listener, when you call in to Map Corner, just give yourself a number. But that number needs to correspond to the countries that you've been to. So I think mine is something like 29. I need to go back and actually have a look. So I'll be Royfield 29. Quite it's super simple. We don't have to do the longitude and latitude thing, but if, if you call in, just say, you know, my name is John Smith. I'm a 27 or my name's Mary and I'm an 18. And we'll just know that we're all part of this wonderful club that is Map Corner because Map Corner is the podcast who's dedicated to the love of maps and all things cartophilic. If Beatles is your projection, you're in the right place. Now, today we are looking at the world of fantasy of whimsy, its imaginary maps. Now, first off, before we get into things, I need to say, Millie Hart, you are the coolest person on our Facebook group. You are queen of the group. Well, Claire, you are empress of the group, but she's one step <laughs> down. She's queen. She's definitely queen because Millie Hart was the first person to buy something from the map corner shop. She's got a mug. 
and she posted a great picture of herself with a mug, but also with all her map stuff. So if you want to be as cool as our Millie Hart, why don't you go into mapcorner.space, click on shop and get a buying. It's one way to help support the podcast and keep it going. Now, Claire. Yes. There is another way which people can support this podcast. Do you know what it is? Is it by leaving us a glowing review? Oh, absolutely. As is our way, because we are a podcast that is fundamentally interested in the globe. We have reviewers from not one, not two, but three countries. Now, we're not going to do this every episode, folks, but just to kind of get this going, we are going to big up and thank the five people that have written us reviews. We have Sotol One from the US. What Sotol says is, I've been a map collector for much of my life. I'm 72 and have already seen a lot of new and interesting maps, some geographic, some Siblet 121 in New Zealand. And he said, Map Corner has made a great start. Mr. Brown and Claire Asprey work really well together on this neat new podcast dedicated to their shared love of maps. And we have Kit Cather Dog from the UK. Says it's a great podcast, a really interesting podcast, which will turn you on to all things map. So uh, you can tell that Royfield's a cartophile and it's infectious. So, you know, do have Um, a sort of injection or something if you think that's worrying. Back over in Blighty, uh, more person says, fantastic start, uh, great start for all map fans, intelligent, lighthearted and informative. And the very last one, Claire? It's Crazy Doodoo from you, the UK. Uh, map chat at its finest, they say. Uh, fantastic wow. stuff. The oral equivalent of unfolding a laminated OS map on a pub table and ordering around. Now, I love that. That is so evocative. That is very cool. Thank you, Crazy Do. Now, we're not going to do this every week, read out reviews, but we really do need to thank the people who have written us a review first off because reviews are super important if you're a podcaster because what they do is give you extra visibility on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. So please help out the podcast by going on to Apple Podcasts, writing us a review. You know, be honest, we're not begging for five stars, but we are begging for some kind of feedback. Also, feedback is good because it helps us to form and shape the show. It's only episode two, and definitely what we want to do is to create a community of listeners. So if you've got something which is a little bit of a niggle, go on, write us a review, or you can write me an email. Uh, I'm Royfield, R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D, at gmail.com. Today, I speak to Kerry Davis, one of the scriptwriters of The Archers, which is the long-running BBC so about how the imaginary village is mapped out and the role it plays in writing the drama. On this week's episode, Claire, we also have some calls. Who are they? We have great calls this week from Ben Jacobs, Jacqueline Berto, uh, Jen and Ken and Aziz. Does Ben get your name right this time? <laughs> yes, I think he did. Maps are a representation of the real world made flat, squashed into 2D. But they also can be very creative things. What colour should you use for this feature or that? Or should you even include it? But what about creating new worlds from a blank sheet of paper? When you create a drama, is an imaginary geography even important? And how do you map that? Today we speak to Kerry Davis, one of the writers of the long-running BBC drama The Archers about the map of Ambridge. Hello Kerry, how are you? I'm very well. Hi Royfield. Kind of in my intro, I pose the question, how important is the actual mapping of an imaginary place in terms of creating the drama? You're at the coalface, you create the drama. Let us know. You, you might think, particularly because the Arches is on the radio, that it um, it doesn't matter at all. It shouldn't matter at all. But mm. the, the fact is that uh, the, the map of Ambridge is absolutely vital to us when we're writing the show or planning uh, planning what's going to happen. Uh, because, for example, just to take a very you know, simple example, mm-hmm. who can see what from their front door or their front windows? Would they be aware of something? How long does it take to get from between two places uh, on the map? Um, and we're not just talking about residential uh, buildings here. Um, you know, we've got, we're, we're based in the English countryside and a lot of our characters are farmers. 
Um, and so, you know, we, we have whole areas that are that are given over to uh, specific uh, bits of farmland. We need to know, you know, what what which farm adjoins another, for example. Uh, so although it might seem odd for something that um, has no uh, visual representation as far as the broadcast uh, program is concerned, that, yeah, we, we have a, we have a, a map of Ambridge and I use it every time I, I sit down to write. Really? Absolutely every time? Yeah. You actually... Okay. So, I, I, so, either, well, I, obviously, I've been working on the show for a long time now in various capacities. Mm. So I have a lot of that map in my head. You know, I, I know what what you know what what uh, buildings are around the village green and which ones are next to each other and which ones are across the road from each other and so on. So either, um, uh, but that's based on the on the visual map. And, and yes, I'm uh, I, I'm forever you know checking details um, of the paper map that we have. Okay, why don't we uh, expand out of Ambridge just for a little bit? Where exactly? is Borsitcher supposed to be um, and where does the name Borsitcher and Ambridge even come from? Who derived those names? Well the, the programme was um, originated by a, a BBC farming producer called Godfrey Baisley and this is back in the 1950s uh, So, and, and much of what we work with nowadays uh, he invented from scratch. Mm-hmm. Um, he based a fictional county, English county, um, roughly on uh, sort of the borders of Worcestershire and Warwickshire um, in England, which um, is to the southwest of Birmingham. Um, and we have, uh, well, Ambridge, he, he wasn't his original uh, name, actually, in the pilot, uh, week of pilot programmes that went mm-hmm. out in 1950. Uh, it was actually called Little Twittington. Um, <laughs> and uh, thank goodness they moved on from that. <laughs> he decided he wanted he wanted uh, an open sound, an R sound works worked mm. best for him. Um, Ambridge. Um, he uh, he invented really as a, as a name, possibly based on a, it's like Cambridge with the C taken off. Mm. Um, and um, Borsetshire, um, I or uh, I think he probably. Uh, took uh, Dorsetshire, the, the, the existing British county, and, and um, amended one letter to come up with uh, with with Borsetshire and, and the nearest town, um, which is Borchester. There's a Dorchester in in England as well. Mm. All of the place names within the county do sound very English, for, for want of a, a a better word. Sure, and and Ambridge sounds so so English and so legitimate that I'm surprised there isn't actually an Ambridge actually within England. The only Ambridge there is in the English-speaking world that I can find is in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, America. yes. It's a, four, it's a sort of steel town, isn't it? And very, mm. different, very different from our little rural Ambridge. Uh, yes, I don't know whether Godfrey Baisley was specifically after um, a, a completely original um, name. Um, he, was, <clears throat> he was certainly very... Um, keen to say that Ambridge wasn't based on any one individual real English village, um, but uh, yeah, it, 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 it's it, it's it's almost unique. So, give us your mind map of the village green, and then expand out on that, and give us you know the immediate villages that are around Ambridge. Sure. So there are. Um, there's a sort of triangle of roads around a, mm-hmm. a classic village green uh, with a duck pond and a, a bench, um, you know, where the, uh, where, where the uh, older residents sit and, and, and take, in, take in the views. It's quite and, a- and, just, and just for our American listeners, a village green is the centre of the village, isn't it? It's where pastimes happen, like cricket and things like yes. that. Yes. Uh, cricket used to be played on the village green, so it must be, must be a, a, a decent size mm-hmm. uh, to accommodate a, a full cricket pitch. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a patch of common grassland, basically, uh, in, mm-hmm. in the centre of the village, owned, owned by everybody and by nobody, um, and to which all the, all the villagers, indeed anyone who passes through, has access. Um, and then uh, overlooking... Uh, the green are two essentials um, of, uh, uh, of of English society: um, a pub and a shop. Sadly, a lot of uh, lot of villages nowadays 
um, haven't retained either of those features. Um, but they're important meeting places for us. So, uh, you know, Ambridge is one of those places where the shop still thrives, although it's now run by the community uh, as a sort of cooperative venture. Um, and the uh, and the pub um, uh, overlooks the green. There's also what was formerly the village school, um, a, a primary school or elementary school for uh, American listeners, um, which is now the village hall, which is a sort of community centre used by a lot of a uh, lot of local groups and uh, the site of uh, many uh, an amateur dramatic uh, production. Uh, there's um, uh, a small uh, road of what uh, once called council houses, um, social housing. Um, now, sadly, many of those are privately owned. Um, yeah. There's a, 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 a small small grouping of uh, old people's homes. Uh, it's called Manorfield Close, um, which are almost like um, the old sort of almshouses, um, which some people might be familiar with. I haven't heard mention of Manorfield Close in years. No, I think it, it's kind of slightly fallen off the radar a bit. Um, mm-hmm. The we, we've tended to focus on um, uh, the green, the, the, well, the the, um, the laurels because um, yes. old people's home. Um, but yeah, we, we I recently partly intentionally to to, uh, to sort of get it back, <laughs> almost literally put it back on the map. Wrote. Uh, wrote a, a scene set uh, set actually in, in Manorfield Close um, where one of our characters was uh, um, ostensibly um, helping, uh, checking on, on, on an elderly relative, uh, elderly resident who was, who'd been suffering from the flu, but also trying to get her vote uh, for, uh, to get her to, to vote for him uh, in, in a, a little competition that they've been running. So if you're a long time kind of writer, of the arches and you've been in it for how many years now uh well over 25 years in different, right, so uh, different 20, jobs, yeah. 25 years and you have this map in your mind do you do you frequently do that do you say you know what i'm gonna mention some you know forgotten little corner of, of the map of ambridge you know i'm gonna talk about you know bull bull farm house or something or another it's good to keep yourself fresh um i like to to bring new things every time I sit down, you know, to, to try and do something that I haven't done before. And yeah, that's one of the ways of doing it. We've also got a, a map of the wider county of um, uh, uh, Borsetshire. Mm-hmm. And uh, certainly there, I'm, I'm forever looking for the, um, you know, a name that hasn't been, hasn't been mentioned for a while, just to keep it fresh. Who designed, uh, let's say, the map of Borsetshire? Because I'm looking at it, and I must admit, I, as as you know, we, we've spoken quite a few times, invariably on on Dumpty Dum. Um, I've been listening to the Archers since 1984. Mm-hmm. I get Felpersham and Borsetshire, the cities mixed up. To me, they're actually one and the same place, and I know they're different, but I don't know the difference. So, yeah. um, tell us tell us about the map, and then tell us about how on a radio drama you can create that difference in geography sure the the map that's um that's most generally available and is the um the closest to uh how ambridge actually is um mm-hmm. was produced by a company called magnetic north um and they're still available you know second hand for, for keen listeners and that's presumably what you you've got one uh, one in front of you there i, I have two sir <laughs> as befits uh, you know a, a true devotee of, of the archers um and uh that was there have been a number of um maps preceding that uh mm-hmm. many of which disagreed with with each other um but we worked from a map uh that the then agricultural advisor a chap called uh, anthony parkin tony parkin um worked from uh when he was he was um doing his sort of farming work as it were writing mm-hmm. farming the, the farming stories um and we 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 took that as a basis and then we looked at all the other sort of competing maps uh, that, uh, that, that, had, that had gone before. We looked at an extensive um, range of, of really all the location information that had ever been um, broadcast in the programme. Uh, mm. and, we, and we produced what um, 
you know, what we said at the time was the definitive map uh, of Ambridge. Since then, um, there have been you know one or two developments on air, uh, literally new housing developments, um, which aren't which aren't marked on on the the magnetic north map, sadly. Uh, but you know, the, obviously things do move on. Um, and it was at that time uh, that the uh, the publishers of the map then actually drafted the map of the county, um, which has been very, very useful. Um, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, we, we we knew, for example, that Borchester it was a town and mm -hmm. was about six miles from Ambridge, uh, and that Felbersham was a city, although a small one, a city because it has a cathedral. It's rather like Worcester, the English mm -hmm. city of Worcester, in that regard, which. Um, to all extents in, in intents and purposes is actually a a large town but it's called the city because it, it has a cathedral and so so that's felpersham and, that, and that's the difference between the two of them really um borchester has uh, like all towns you've grown over the grown over the years but we we, we try and keep it uh, still with the town feel um rather than you know having two competing cities close together so if i'm looking at the map of borsitcher and I've got kind of Hassett Hills over to the, the northwest and I've got the ring roads, etc. And I kind of understand that. And the you know, the, the eight-year-old wannabe cartographer in me gets incredibly excited about all of that. But there was um, a civil war battle, wasn't there? Um, which, which is also marked, marked on yeah. the map. Um, I, re I I know there has been reference to this civil war battle, but then who decides exactly where that's going to be? Because obviously it's been mentioned. I, I think old remnants were dug up by Joe Grundy or something or another sure. um, way back when. But then who decides, right, it's going to be exactly there on this map? Uh, well, was I, I think that literally was, you know, it provided in draft form to us uh, by mm. the publishers at the time. Um Based on whatever information, I don't know how much information there was specifically on, uh, had gone out on air about the location, possibly none about the mm. actual, you know, how far away it might have been from Ambridge or whether it was north, south, east or west. So, you know, and, and, and so in a way, an arbitrary decision was made. But once, once it was committed to paper, then, you know, we know where it okay. is and we work, we would work to that for the future. So, so the question is, um, would the residents of Ambridge in uh, the 17th century, would they have been uh, roundheads or cavaliers? Oh, Lord, I'd have to look, look back into the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember, to be honest. Well, I'm quite, well, I'm quite good on Archer's history from 1951 onwards. <laughs> I'm, I'm not so good about the 1600s, I'm afraid. One of the, one of the things which people do criticise uh, the Archers um, about is accents and obviously accents can really root a place um in terms of kind of reality you get the geography of it before you even physically see it on the map how important are accents in creating a real ambridge do you think yeah they are definitely the um while there are there are sort of incomers from various parts of the British Isles um, mm -hmm. living in Ambridge, so you know people with a Scottish accent, with an Irish Irish accent, accent and so on, the the, de the, the, the the sort of denizens of Ambridge broadly fall into two categories depending on social class, mm -hmm. and and their accents will tend to uh, match one or other of those. So they they will either be They'll either talk a bit like me, uh, and they'll be the middle class characters, mm -hmm. um, where the accent is really not that distinguishable from, say, the southeast of England, which is actually quite a long way from where Ambridge is meant to be. But mm -hmm. that's the effect of, of that. What's what used to be known as still it still is I suppose as RP um, received pronunciation, um, and then the more working class characters will tend to have a local accent. And when we are um, recruiting a new actor, we tend to use Gloucestershire as, um, as a guide. Um, we, Gloucestershire accent has elements of both of the West Country accent and the Midlands accent. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so that's, you know, if, if there's a classic 
Borsetshire accent, then it equates to Gloucestershire. Uh, but it, you know, everyone has their own individual uh, way of speaking as well, and and so that can affect. So some, so some, so, uh, our character Susan Carter tends more towards the Midlands end of it. Um, our character Ed Grundy tends a bit more towards the west country uh, side of uh, side of the accent and partly i think that's an element of where they themselves were were brought up and, and i suppose there's an inherent kind of tension between having um a radio soap which is all about vocals and actually having characters with very distinctive voices mm. as well yes so, so, you, so you kind of do need to have your, dare I say, your placeholders from all around the UK and, and also to have people with, with different accents. Yeah, you don't want it to sound like a complete Tower of Babel where every character has a, a, has a different accent from another. But, and it is, it is actually a challenge with, with the more middle-class characters. Um, uh, we've got quite a few you know, male characters who um, you need to get to know quite well before you, mm. you, you can easily distinguish them. And that, that is a challenge for us. And... How much of that is because because I was speaking to to Terry Malloy who obviously played uh, let's say plays let's keep it in the present yes, tense absolutely yeah plays Mike Tucker and Terry has a very distinctive accent and I was surprised to to discover that he was actually a Geordie to me he doesn't <laughs> there is no element of Geordie in, in his voice no. but he but he he definitely played one of the working class characters he was the milkman and has a regional brogue, shall yeah, we say. Yeah. How do you think that the archers, in terms of setting the place of where it is, kind of suffers from the fact that, let's say, in the last 30 years or so, that the acting profession, at least people that have seemed to have come through into the fall, are seen, have come from the English middle classes. So hence there's been that type of, of action. Obviously, there is the class divider, which you've explained. But... But if I go back and listen to old episodes of uh, of the Archers back in in the seventies, you can find those ones online. The accents were very much more rural, shall we say? Yeah, um, that's uh, a large part of that is, is I think because uh, there was a policy in the early days of mm -hmm. casting some what you might call real people. Um, they were not trained actors. They they might have been performers in another field, um, singers, poetry readers, um, might have done talks as themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and they were genuine country people and they came from places like Oxfordshire in particular. Um, uh, and those characters, I'm afraid, you know, they, they, they were some of, the, some of the longest serving characters, have eventually literally died, died off. Um, and we, and so it, the other thing about actually, want to think of it, if you listen to the middle class characters, they sounded posher then than they do now because there has mm. been a, a, over the decades a general, a sort of slight democratization, if you like, of, of the way people speak, and and uh, whereas people, more people then spoke, as it were, like the Queen, um, even middle class characters now middle class people uh the accents uh become a little less posh so we're we're, we're at a we're at a situation now i think where uh you know we've, we've got rural characters who aren't sounding quite as rural across the board as they used to some of them mm -hmm. anyway and uh, probably the 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 more the middle class characters aren't sounding as posh as they are and and we do need to be careful that we don't you know end up with it can be completely homogenous and in the middle mm. just to end up obviously you've got this mind map of ambridge mm -hmm. um you know it intimately uh better than most what's your favorite view in the in, in ambridge Oh gosh! Um, I mean, the classic one, I suppose, is from the top of Lakey Hill. Lakey it's, Hill. It's, I knew you were going to say. Yeah. Don't give me that one, then. Give me another one. <laughs> give, give... <laughs> well, there's always the view from Hayden Barrow, which is uh, uh, which is a sort of uh, <laughs> another the other high point, actually. I, I suppose. Um, mm -hmm. I, uh, you know, because because that gives you the panorama looking looking down over the. Uh, over the village but I, I i think actually if you're in the 
the garden of the bull and you're looking out across the green as the, as the sun is setting. Um, and, and you see in front of you, you know, a quintessential English village. I think that's a, that's a view that would be hard to beat. Kerry Davis, thank you for coming on to Map Corner. The My pleasure. Total star. Thank you. Ah, oh, that was lovely, mate. Cool. You total star. You know your onions, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> Can waffle on it uh, at length about any, uh, any related thing. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm stood at Twin Peaks, the highest point over the city of San Francisco. Not only San Francisco, but the San Francisco Bay Area. And it kind of made me think. I can look out over this majestic view of the end of the peninsula. It's, if you imagine a finger and then your fingernail, your fingernail would be the city of San Francisco. But San Francisco isn't even the largest city, the largest place in the San Francisco Bay Area. Looking directly ahead of me, I can see Market Street that clearly divides the city between east and west. It majestically cuts through all the houses like a hot knife, leading almost to a Wizard of Oz-like cacophony of tall buildings, which is obviously the downtown. It's this downtown which has economically dominated the Bay Area. San Francisco only has a population of 800,000. San Jose, some 30 miles to the south, but still part of the conurbation, the, the knot of houses that connect it to San Francisco, has a population of over a million, but still is part of the San Francisco Bay Area. So to the north but west, I can see the North Bay, which is connected to the city by the Golden Gate Bridge. To the north but slightly east of where I'm looking, I can see the East Bay, which has the cities of Oakland and Berkeley. And even though those are not part of San Francisco, it's only because of the energy, the vitality of the city of San Francisco, which really makes these cities and towns viable. So where does a city begin and end? To the south of where I am, there is a straight line which says that the city of San Francisco ends. But, as I said, where does the city truly begin and end? Is it where they say the line is, so it's just 700,000-odd people? Or is it the urban conurbation, which has a population of maybe some 10 million? Or is it even further than that? I'm speaking to you from an Apple device. 
And yes, Apple, the company, the headquarters of Apple are not within the city of San Francisco, but Silicon Valley is definitely part of the economic mix in the conurbation. So maybe San Francisco's influence goes as far as wherever you are, if you've got an Apple Mac or an iPhone, or maybe if you've caught an Uber, because of the energy the vitality, the special unique mix of this place. Its companies, its brands are worldwide. But on this gloomy day, the limits of San Francisco are where the grey bay meets a grey sky. This is a brand new podcast and what I like to do is obviously to is like to wander the wander the earth, so to speak. Well I do spend a lot of time in California, Toronto, Birmingham and London, really. They're, they're my, my go-to places. And there are other places besides. So um, if you like these audio segments where I look at my environs and then try and uh, make sense out of that in, in, a, in a mapping sense, um, please let me know because somebody did actually say, um, send me an email. Say, oh, I don't know if that worked, Royful. So if these don't work, please tell me, and I'll and I'll stop doing them. If you think they do, if you want to give me a thumbs up, let me know. Because very much what we're trying to do, as we said earlier at the start of the show, is to create our podcast about all things mapping and kind of global. Now, Claire, yes, it's time for listener calls, isn't it? Indeed. On that note, let's start with our bearded Ben. Hello, Map Corner people. Hello, Claire. Hello, what's his name? This is Ben once again. Uh, Royfield had asked for fictional maps this time. Uh, and while I am tempted to pass on my ongoing love for the original maps from The Wizard of Oz, I will instead uh, tip my hat to the maps from the Tolkien universe, which are ridiculously expansive. I'm pretty sure Tolkien did them, them himself, and they've spawned a whole ton of online content. Enjoy. Thank you. I'm going to be honest, Claire. I've never read a, one of his books, so I can't even start. So I'm just going to um, hand over to you. Well, I've never read any of the books either, but I did go and see the first Lord of the Rings film when I lived in Spain mm -hmm. with my housemate who was Romanian. And he nudged mm -hmm. me all the way through saying, what's going on? What's going on? And I was like, I haven't got the faintest idea because it was all <laughs> dubbed into Spanish and... Uh, except the bit was sort of in Elvish, uh, and they were subtitled in Spanish, so I could definitely understand those better because I was better at reading subtitles than listening to the dubbing. And um, I came away not desperately bothered about the whole thing, if I'm honest, and I don't know whether watching it in English would have made any difference. But apologies to all Tolkien fans because I know they're very keen and I'm sure it is a magical, absorbing universe. I know there's kind of Sodor and all this kind of malarkey. So I, I, like you know some, some of the names, but I haven't read the books and I haven't really seen the movies, though. I think Sodor were... is the place where Thomas the Tank Engine lives, actually. Oh, gosh. Well, there you go. <laughs> I'm really letting myself down here. Isn't it Mordor? I think it's Mordor. There you go. Well... I'm going to pass on this. If you're an expert at talking maps, why don't you call in in a future episode because the pair of us don't know what the hell we're talking about and obviously didn't see fit to do any research off the back of your call, Ben. So I do heartily apologise. Um, so from Ben over in New, New England, um, it's uh, Jacqueline Berto, who I believe is in Brittany in France. Hi, Royfield and Map Corner, Cornerers. Um, this is Jacqueline Berto from Sanguen in France. Uh, English uh, originally, but now with dual nationality, which probably is a good thing with the, as we're in March uh, 2019. Sorry, probably not supposed to mention that. Um, my <laughs> first experience of maps, which I love and adore and I'm really a bit obsessed about, um, came when I started reading the Lone Pine Adventures um, books by Malcolm Saville, which were mainly set in Shropshire, which I had the joy of visiting um, uh, in my teens and then just a few years ago. Uh, the first book I read was um, set in Rye, and that was always a dream for me to visit one of those Sankborg 
Um, uh, so each book had a hand-drawn uh, map inside it, which gave you the uh, very relevant uh, places to situate yourself. And for many years, that's how I saw Rye in particular, and definitely how I saw Shropshire as these kind of um, uh, uh, undulating little drawings with small roads that led to uh, nowhere or to somewhere specific, but only there. Um, so that's how I got to realize that I liked maps and I like and I still enjoy a map that illustrates a book um, uh, and um, many other kinds of maps as well informative maps and um, because I'm the head uh, honcho as far as organizing holidays and things are concerned in our household um, we have quite a lot of maps from various places and I always order a map before we go somewhere, even if it's of no use whatsoever. But um, I, I, uh, I really, really enjoy uh, exploring the maps to understand the country before we go. Take care, you guys. And it's a brilliant podcast. Thank you very much. Oh, thank, thank you, Jacqueline. Jacqueline. I think she's learned that from my dad. That's exactly the old holiday planning, get a map in uh, thing that I inherited from my Asprey jeans. You know, I, I love that a map as souvenir because in a world of google maps on your phone it's a very tangible way of saying yeah i actually went there isn't it whether you've used the map or not it's just really nice just to have it on a shelf and it's like a badge of honor in a way that having a stamp in your passport is a badge of honor indeed but going back onto these, uh, onto jacqueline's maps of the lone pine adventures did you have did you have a look at them um i looked at some of the maps um so yeah really interesting uh looking kind of imaginary not quite imaginary world what i really got from them is a real sense that it was almost kind of like a semi-medieval perspective because if you remember looking at a lot of medieval maps they have you know small little uh drawings of physically of the towns and they have a weird kind of perspective so you know like a, a modern map you are directly to direct bird's eye view isn't it you're looking down Mm -hmm. but a lot of medieval maps they're at some weird kind of like 45 degree angle so they show you perspective even though they're flat on a piece of paper so you can see a hill and can't quite see behind the hill then they'll show you little houses and stuff and um and that's very much uh the feel that you get get from these maps and i must admit i love a book when you start a book and it's an imaginary world and to set it, they give you the geography of the place. I, I actually kind of quite like that. Yeah, I think in some ways, it's the thing that I mean. We'll see this from all the calls and the, and the suggestions, but you know, the the uh, the map in a book thing seems to be very much the preserve of the kind of fantasy type fiction. Whereas there are mm. plenty of modern fiction as well that I could have done with a map. I read this very interesting. Uh, book set in I think it was Nairobi or someone like that and I just thought I did I just didn't get a feel for the geography so it's quite hard to picture where the action was taking place and I actually could have done with <laughs> so something that uh, in terms of something that's set in the modern world uh, just because it's modern and it's real doesn't mean that a map wouldn't be useful and sometimes I think it would be nice to to see that mm, definitely but you know as you talk I just think you know uh, possible topics for, for future shows and and burgeoning cities and different types of cities and how they're how they grow and then potentially how they are mapped is definitely um a topic we should maybe cover in, in a future episode and you you listener if you've got an idea of a topic that we really should cover uh, send send me an email it's royfield at gmail.com that's royfield with an i so it's r-o-i-f-i-e-l-d at gmail.com or quite simply go on to mapcorner.space go on to contact and uh, leave us a message because the thing is about Nairobi as well is that there, there's lots of there's going to be lots of areas of the city I've never I've never been but I've kind of seen documentaries about it and stuff lots of sit- parts of the city which aren't centrally planned and I'm thinking that you know if you come from um a Western perspective where if there, a road is going to be marked and then dwellings put next to it or offices or industrial units, that's all centrally planned, isn't it? Whereas oh, yeah. informal settlements ab- abound in places like um, Africa, 
in bits of Asia and, and, and South America. Oh, very much so. And the last time I was in Morocco, I have to say, like the the expansion of Saleh, which is the kind of bit the other side of the river from Rabat, the central city, uh, capital city. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just phenomenally fast growth. And I'm not aware that when we went to visit family there and there was just, I didn't see any street names. And I was like, how do you, has anyone even navigate how they get around? And how does the post arrive? Uh, it was incredibly dynamic in terms of the rate of change there. Um, and that's not so much the case, certainly in the UK, where we have to gazetteer all the new addresses. And I uh, know someone in my organisation who does that. So, uh, yeah, it's a, a different environment. Um, I, I like the way you just throws in, through in there, gazetteer. You know, props to you, Asprey. Uh, so we're expanding our, our mapping lexicon. Now, what is your favourite drama, fantasy drama, Claire, that involves a dragon a hot woman with blonde hair, a handsome bloke who is actually her nephew and an imaginary world? Well, I feel like the official answer to this is Games of Thrones. <laughs> I've never seen it. You re- you're joking me. No, no. I, well, it's there's just so much of it now, isn't there? I, mean, like, I, didn't, I haven't tended to watch TV very much and it just seems too daunting to start now. Oh, gosh, no. Watch it. Watch it. Seriously. Listen to these calls, then I'll come back and I'll school you. Right, here is uh, Jennifer and Ken. Hello, Hello, Map Corner. Corner. This is Jen. And Ken. And our favourite fictional map is the interactive map at the beginning of Game of Thrones. No fan of Game of Thrones would ever skip the opening titles because the map tells you all the important places the characters will be during this episode. If you ever said, oh Oh my my God, God, Daenerys Daenerys Targaryen is still in Marine," We feel your pain. (laughs) We chose the opening from Season 6, Episode 10. Okay, here we go. Okay, swooping down from heaven to Westeros is into its capital, King's Landing, seat of the Iron Throne, home of the incestuous, murderous Queen Cersei. It gets real hot there sometimes. (laughs) Okay, now here we go. Swooping uh, farther north to the Twins... Home of House Frey, or it used, used to, to be. be. Winter came for House Frey. Now we go to Winterfell, home of the Starks. Winterfell is no longer on fire, which it was for about two seasons, and the Dire Wolf has replaced the sigil of the Flayed Men. Yay! Ramsay Bolton really let things go to the dogs. <laughs> Further north is the Mighty Wall of Ice, home of the Night's Watch keeping the White Walkers at bay since the last millennia or something like that. There's that wall. Okay, and now we wish way over to Essos. Not Esteros, as you may think it should be called. And oh my god, Daenerys is still in Marine. Khaleesi and her unsullied warriors have freed the slaves and fried their masters with her dragons. Now we're leaving Slaver's Bay and flying back to Dorne instead of Bravos, Which is my favorite location. A blog I used to research called Dorne, slight of no one's favorite storyline. And now we're out of time. Thanks. That was one epic uh, production. Uh, you've set the bar very high. I love Jen and Ken. I think I, I'm, I'm not going to start watching Game of Thrones until I can sit down with them and watch it. You're going to have to get yourself over to the States for that, aren't you? <laughs> but listen, uh, Jen and Ken, that, that was absolutely amazing. Uh, epic. Rigging every week. Please do. Please do. And I, I like the little gags there about Ramsey Bolton letting things go to the dogs. Uh, made, made me laugh out loud. Well done, you pair. Um, now, Obviously, Game of Thrones is probably the most uh, popular fictional map of the moment because of the success of the series. So Aziz, who does a podcast about Game of Thrones, decided to ring in and uh, map out where exactly um, George, uh, George Martin basically got his inspiration from. So this is a call from Aziz. Hey, Roy Field. It's Aziz from the History of Westeros podcast calling in. And of course, as a lot of you know, Westeros is maybe the most popular fantasy map in the world right now because Game of Thrones is just so incredibly popular. So it's cool to learn a few things about the map and how it was made. What George R. R. Martin, the author, did was he took real world concepts and turned them into fantasy concepts. In this case, geography. 
He took Ireland and turned it upside down and backwards so that Northeast Ireland is now Southwest Ireland with Cork in the North and Londonderry in the South. Dublin is now the West and Galway is now the East. Take England and mash it on top of all that. So now you have an England-Ireland mashup that's one large continent. And then, because George R. R. Martin likes to make things bigger, you take this mashup and expand it by about three or four times. What you find is at the top, there's a really great match. And the north of Westeros is the famous Wall of Ice. And in the north of England is the famous Hadrian's Wall. These, this is an intentional parallel. And there are some other parallels as well. In some cases, George R. R. Martin uses familiar language but puts it in different places. In England, we have Wales, which has a feature called the Eyrie. In Westeros, there's the Vale, which has a famous castle called the Eyrie. So another small connection like that. We also have some similar features in places like the other continents, though less featured in the story of Game of Thrones, are also important, and they're also influenced by the real world. There's the city of Bravos, which has a lot in common with Venice. And there's the farther east, which has similarities to the steppe peoples, to Arab cultures, to Chinese cultures, and then there's the continent of Sothorios, which has a lot in common with Africa. That's just the tip of the iceberg for you. The real detail, there's a lot more to know about Game of Thrones and the maps that George R. R. Martin has created, but I think that gives you a great start. Uh, Colette, you really need to watch this thing. Don't wait for Jen and Ken to invite you over. Get, get, get it done, Mrs. <laughs> Part of my immersion has to be said, is because of the world which is being created and seen in map form. And and what I realised very quickly about what George R. Martin has done um, is obviously kind of, there are seven kingdoms in Westeros. So it's the Heptarchy. Um, so it's, uh, it's the early Anglo-Saxon period before England w- w- was one country. But then politically, it's the war of the roses mm. but and then historically what he's done it's the high point of medieval culture before the invention of gunpowder so there aren't any cannons there aren't any guns and but by the time of the wars of the roses there actually were but what he's cleverly done is if you were let's say if you were an educated person in 1450 which is kind of where he's really setting this. You know, he gets a little bit kind of loose and creative with kind of technologies and stuff. But people are quite educated and technologically astute. But I say there is no gunpowder in his world. But you would have believed in dragons. You know, you still had maps of the world produced at that time. And it says there be dragons. In other words, we don't know what the hell's going on over there. We know, we know it exists. And you see these wonderful maps of, of Africa. Uh, where the northern coast is mapped out beautifully but then as you go further south that are say there be dragons or here be people walking around with, with three heads and this is just at the start of the age of discovery or just before so you've got portuguese circumnavigating africa but it's just before columbus has gone across the ocean blue so to speak the that's the really clever thing which he's actually done but you look at these maps claire and they are really good when you see game of thrones and you see the cities and you go i i brabos that's a bit of venice with a bit of bruges mixed in it it, (laughs) is a real easter egg for for us map heads well you are convincing me have a i'll have a go episode one shall i and see how i go don't let the White Walkers and the Blue Eyes put you off. Soldier through. There's there's a bit of Owsy Father, loads of slap and tickle by episode two. So if you like a heaving breast or some buttocks, that'll keep you going. Then there's Knights in Shining Armour. But apart from all of that, there is some phenomenal uh, kind of character studies in terms of creating a world. He's obviously done it in the books, but visually... Every episode feels like a movie. This is a, a something something for all the senses, literary, visual, kind of, and, and emotional, really. And imaginary, which is uh, fundamentally the theme of today's episode. So, really? folks, if you want to send us in a voicemail, please do that. Quite simply, you just go onto mapcorner.space, which is, that's our website. Click on the red tab over on the right. 
it works from a phone, a mobile phone, or even works from your laptop. And quite simply, uh, send us in a message. And it doesn't have to be about a map. It can be, tell us about your favourite place. Tell us about your favourite town or country and, and tell us why. And just contribute. Yeah. Claire, people contribute to us in other ways as well. They do it on the Twitters and on Facebook. Yes. And uh, we use the Map Corner hashtag on Twitter. Uh, and mm-hmm. we have our own Facebook group, which now has 115 members. So it's gone up again. Woo-hoo. So that's fantastic. And um, we've had quite a lot of uh, really good suggestions of the uh, fictional maps uh, since we mm-hmm. uh, put some posts up on that uh, this last sort of week or so, including many of the ones that people have called in about. Uh, in fact, several people called in about the uh, Malcolm Savile map. Uh, but also I've been looking up the Tortull universe uh which asher wolf sent in information on and uh this is another whole sort of fantasy world which i was completely unaware of a series of books uh by a writer called tamora pierce and uh she writes similar sort of fantasy fiction but with sassy teenage girls as the heroes uh, or heroines throughout uh so that definitely looks like one to watch and of course, alongside all the traditional books, that we've also had Tim Bowden sent us a whole load of suggestions, including Narnia, of course, uh, Treasure Island, and a Moomin Valley, which I thought was quite nice. And Mike Hatton suggested Hundred Acre Wood, the home of Winnie the Pooh. So everything from uh, high adventure and Tolkien all the way down to Winnie the Pooh. So that's a pretty broad sweep, isn't it? And interestingly enough, one of the other things that came in on Facebook was a map about sort of the mottos of different counties in the UK. Oh, um, yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, I was quite interested that the the motto for Bedfordshire, which is where I live, uh, is uh, Constant B, which is a reference to... Uh, John Bunyan, who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, when in Bedford Jail for preaching uh, un- illegally. And it was set in a mm-hmm. fictionalised version of the area. That comes from the, the hymn, He Would He Who Would Valiant Be, which was based on The Pilgrim's Progress. So uh, again, there's another link to a fictional map. Some of the maps of the uh, Pilgrim's Progress geography are not the most exciting to look at actually but they are and they're, and they're very moralistic in, t- in places but um you know but it is an interesting uh, look at taking a real place and making it allegorical you got anything else there in terms of fictional maps on Twitter, the uh, the other one that came in was Swallows and Amazons and the kind of the maps that encourage people to have adventures in the Lake District with children. Cool. What did kind of pique my interest on, I can't remember whether I posted this first on Facebook or Twitter, but anyway, I, I posted it to both in the end. Um, not at all imaginary. But the renaming of places, of countries, which I always think is like a weird thing. Because you think about it, you know, you're American or you're Canadian or you're English. And you you can't imagine your country being renamed. It's something which on one level you see see as being an utter permanence. You know, England just is England. But of course, there was a time when somebody decided, let's call this place the land of the Angles. You know, there was, there was a time when names were were up for debate and countries do decide to rename themselves for a whole load of reasons. And one of the kind of popular reasons is that formerly you had a colonial name and you want to shake that off and you want to go back to a more native and, and a truer name. So I posted a map which is countries that have been renamed and it only goes back about 30 years because you know you, but did you know claire that two european countries in the last five years have formally changed their names did you know that well i have been aware of the recent decision for macedonia but i wasn't aware mm-hmm. of the czech change I was really surprised with with the Czech change and I was aware of it, but it just kind of came out of nowhere for me. I didn't even know there was a debate about it. It was literally a case of, oh, yeah, the Czech Republic is now going to be called Czechia. But the whole former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia thing is, I think, for the rest of the world makes no sense. It's the reason why Greeks get very exercised about that, but exercised about it, they do. 
And that's rumbled on for ever such a long time. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, just quickly running through the countries that in relatively recent times have changed their names. Cape Verde, I didn't know that had changed its name back in 2013 to Capo Verde. Dahomey changed its name from Benin. I did know that. And then the, the, the example, which is the one which most people are kind of aware of, well, there's a couple. There's Zaire been renamed as Congo, which was its original name, and then Mobutu changed it to Zaire, thinking it was a more indigenous sounding name. And then you discovered that it's actually a corruption of Portuguese and an indigenous name. But Zaire's gone back to being Congo, Southwest Africa, Namibia. It's another one which I didn't know that there was a de- the king of this country decided in uh, just last year i think it's their 50th anniversary of independence to change the name so swaziland has been renamed eswatini which means the the land of the swazis and then there is cambodia which used to be Kampuchea, but was cambodia before and then i think the example that most people are aware of is burma and myanmar but I wasn't aware back in 1989 that it actually changed its name. And I think the world is somewhat resistant, really, to calling it Myanmar. And then there's Western Samoa that just knocked off the Western bit. But then you think about all the places that have changed, like cities that have changed names mm. through, again, some through, some through sort of changes in colonial usage, um, you know, places in India, especially where we, we call them different names now. But then also the political changes, the difference between Leningrad and St. Petersburg, for example. And uh, I'm sure there are quite a lot when it comes to place names. And there was even another step there. There was Petrograd. Mm. And and that's even a fascinating story because, of course, St. Petersburg was founded by Peter the Great in the early 18th century. And he wanted and he wanted to move the capital away from Moscow because he saw it as being backward. He wanted to create this new modern Russian state and said, right, we're going to get the best, the brightest architects and town planners from Europe. So it's a whole bunch of Germans that kind of came over and mapped out on this swampy land, uh, St. Petersburg, hence the Berg, because there was a big German influence. Then the Tsar gets defeated in a way of striking down the past was to get rid of this German suffix and it was Petrograd and then on a Lenin it becomes Leningrad and then we go all the way back when the communists fall they go let's go back to the original name so there's a fascinating kind of story of just around that city names changing them another topic for another map corner Claire after I've spoken about the name change that is St. Petersburg, Petrograd and Leningrad back St. Petersburg. Taking a, taking a breath, why don't you tell us about which map is your Claire Asprey, Empress of the Maps, Map of the Week? Oh, well, it's the one that Audrian DC sent on the Facebook group, which is yet another, another crafted map, picking up the theme of crafted maps from last week or last time. And uh, it was uh, maps of Pakistan and India using embroidery techniques of each region. Oh, yes. uh, I just love this. I would love something physical on my wall like this uh, in my own home because it just looks amazing. Um, so... I think I really like how you can imbue a map with a sense of place uh, and, a, and a feeling of telling a story about a certain location or a tradition. And I think these do it really well. An utterly beautiful uh, map. Uh, and as you said, it goes to illustrate the regions that make up India and, and Pakistan. And then the, and, and really the, the kind of the cultural tra- traditions through, through weaving was absolutely beautiful. And um, he, he, you know what? I can keep spinning this. You know? I'm such a bore. But I just really love Matt. We should even do an episode on undemarcated borders because that's Kashmir between India and Pakistan is or disputed ones. And of course, that border has been very much in the news recently. Have you seen? Have you ever seen the uh, the, the flag uh, lowering ceremony that goes on between India and Pakistan? Have you seen videos of that? It's crazy, isn't oh, it? Oh, listener, please type in India-Pakistan border ceremony 
it is something to marvel, something to marvel. And let's hope that those two countries stop all the silly shenanigans and, and get get back to peace and building bridges. Now, uh, I did say this at the top of the show. Go on to mapcorner.space uh, onto um, our shop. Go and have a look at our wares. We've got some mugs there. We've also got a lot of bloody books, actually. So the books that we talked about in the first episode, the things like Prisoners of Geography, um, if you're going to purchase it, you might as well purchase it through us because then we get thrown about about a dollar uh, for our for our time or for our effort. So please go on to mapcorner.space, have, have a look at the shop, see what geographic gems there are there. Ooh, a bit of alliteration. And um, help keep this podcast afloat. Now, I'm definitely spent now, Claire. Uh, so I'm going to leave it for you to wrap up because you're much more organised and better at these things than me. Well... Join in, join the group, <laughs> listen in, send us a message. Thank you for listening. Well done, you. Let's hit stop. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.